Good morning and welcome to Success Happens. This is Jen and it is so great to be with everybody today. You know, what a world we live in right now. When you think about everything you do, takes money. It costs money or you earn it. And there's this exchange of goods and services that makes our economy vibrant. And I've been saying for long before, you know, a lot of this got as bad as it did well over a year ago, we're going to get inflation if we're not careful. Money doesn't grow on trees, you know, and this notion of, well, just give them another stimulus has a price. That's where we are right now. And I've been very concerned about the state of our economy. And so I reached out to my friends over at the Heritage Foundation and I asked them for an expert on the economy who could give us some insight as to where we are, why we're here, and where are we going? What's the predictable future? Because we all need to make sure that we are indeed prepared for what could be coming at us as an economic downturn. And we've been through it in 08, right? That was brutal. And when I interviewed the comptroller of Maryland last April, 2020, he was anticipating huge losses in revenue for the state. So all of that's rolling downhill now and about to hit us. And so I want to welcome to Success Happens this morning, Joel Griffith from the Heritage Foundation. He's an economist, he's an attorney, and has that legal lens to look through. And so it's really great to have you with us. Good morning, Joel. Hey, good morning. Thank you for having me on your show, Jennifer. Oh, my pleasure. And always great to have somebody from Heritage with us because you all bring that level of expertise and understanding and frankly, foresight because you're steeped in it, right? I mean, you're living it every single day. So I really appreciate having you all as a, as a resource for our listeners to educate everyone about what's what's going on. So let's talk about a couple of things. First of all, tell us about your background so people understand the expertise that you bring to the conversation. Oh, and sure. Well, my background was in training as, as a lawyer, but over the past um, you know, several better part of a guess going on a decade now. I've spent uh, a lot of time diving into economic policy, and really at times seeing that intersection between economic policy and the law. Um, a big part of that has been looking into housing policy, and of course, this has been especially important to a lot of us as we've seen home prices get out of control and families priced out of the market. There's an intersection of law and economics on housing policy, but you see that in many, many areas of the economy, especially in the last year and a half in this age of COVID, where you see a lot of legal actions, some of which were actually illegal, taken by politicians to control their economy or shutter the economy. And now we're bearing a lot of economic consequences from that. So it's really a fascinating overlap, but it's an overlap that has real consequences to the everyday lives of families. And that's why I'm so interested and passionate um, on these topics? Well, I, I have a strong background in human services, so I'm looking at it from the standpoint of the working poor, people who are on the brink of homelessness, who are one paycheck away or one car repair away from being without the money to pay a mortgage or rent or their lighting bill, so they, they end up letting go of their electric or in the case of seniors, sometimes they don't pay their medical uh, 
or they don't get their medicines they need, split the meds, you know, to make them last. All of this goes on when people are living on the edge of poverty. How close to the edge of poverty are we right now? And I guess what you would look at it from the standpoint is how many people are now on the edge of poverty who were not during the Trump era before COVID? Well, leading up to the COVID shutdowns, we were enjoying a period of economic prosperity, the likes of which we actually had not seen before. We had a record low unemployment. We had median household incomes at all-time highs. Of course, you had the stock markets also near all-time highs, so people's retirement accounts were doing well. And I think very importantly, we had embarked on a series of reforms on the federal level that was really building the foundation for an even longer period of prosperity. Um, If you look at the tax cuts that we saw for businesses, it made our businesses much more competitive, took our businesses from being taxed near the highest in the industrialized world to something that was more average. And we saw the prior administration continue the energy renaissance, allowing natural gas and oil development to continue. And we were seeing a long-term trend of lower energy prices because we had a government that was actually in favor of allowing private businesses to actually pursue these natural resources. And unfortunately, over this past year and a half, we have put a lot of those positive policies into really a high energy reverse. And I'm concerned going forward, this is going to have a real impact on American families beyond everything that we're dealing with now with all the COVID shutdowns, supply chain issues and inflation. I'm concerned that what we've done in the past year and a half with longer term government policy is really going to cause American families to be less prosperous than they otherwise would have been. So when you say elections have consequences, this is precisely what we're talking about. When leadership gets into power that doesn't have our best interests at heart, they here's the problem. They say they do. They say they do. Build back better bust is, you know, all about we're taking care of you. But here's the thing. Money doesn't grow on trees. And the more you print it, the more you devalue the dollar. Can you educate people about that, please? Well, sure. Well, you know, if you go back to when these shutdowns first occurred, there was uh, an, uh, support from both Republicans and Democrats, uh, bipartisan support to distribute large sums of money to American families, really unrelated to even need. And um, I often say sometimes some of the worst policy decisions are actually bipartisan policy decisions. That certainly held true leading up during that first year of the COVID shutdowns when you saw the federal government borrowing hundreds of billions, actually borrowing trillions of dollars, spending, and then having our central bank print trillions of dollars to buy government debt, which then was unleashed um, into the American economy. And that has some some short-term consequences. We saw, because of all those new funds that were released, we saw demand stimulated at the very same time that you had federal governments, local governments, state governments telling businesses they could not operate. You had factories that weren't allowed to produce. You had people that weren't able to ship. And you saw this globally. So at the same time that we had governments suppressing supply, we had those same governments, especially in the United States, trying to juice up demand. 
So that's a big problem. And that was a, you know, those are shorter term consequences that we're dealing with now. We're feeling those issues when we go to the grocery store, both in terms of items not being on the shelf and also items costing more when they are in stock. But what we've seen over this past year, really since January, when President Biden came into office, we've seen those problems, which are already bad policy decisions <laughs> the last year in 2020. Now we've seen the radical left attempt to build on that and make these very bad physical policies, making them permanent. And if you look at the Build Back Better um, plan that you just brought up, and along with the smaller infrastructure, so-called infrastructure package that passed just a few weeks ago, what that does is build on those mistakes of the past year and actually make them permanent and permanently expand government control over a much larger part of the economy. Wow. So let's unpack that a little bit. The first thing that comes to mind that I was thinking about when you said that, again, I look through a human services lens, is people were suffering. I mean, I knew people who couldn't get their unemployment checks here in Maryland. They had a terrible time. People went homeless. They lived in their cars. I mean, it was bad. Now, there was some protection. They couldn't throw people out if they were indeed unable to pay their rent. There was some protection there. But there were people who were already, again, on the brink of poverty that this just shoved them over the edge. I said last year, okay, maybe we need six to eight weeks to resort this out. But when we went beyond in Maryland, it was March 16, I'll never forget it, until May 20th. And then we could only be outside. Well, that was all fine and good until the summertime and people would have a heart attack out on my tarmac. So um, so when you look at the constraints they put on business and some states worse than others, we're in Maryland. So we got hammered. Florida, not so much. Texas, not so much. And it was definitely political. I mean, there's no question, right? Yeah. The states that were less restrictive were Republican. And there was no correlation, as much as they try to make it so, between the COVID outbreak and the sh the shutdown degree to which states were shut down. So now that we've been through all of this, Joel, where does that leave us in terms of recovery for businesses? Because there are businesses who, who have shuttered because they could not overcome the immense challenges they faced. What do you suggest, first of all, to business owners who are on the brink right now trying to hold on to a business? They haven't lost it yet, but they're they're close. Yeah, and, and as you mentioned, there is a wide disparity across the country in how businesses have fared and how regular families have fared. Uh, even by the middle of last summer, there were uh, close to a dozen states that had economies that were larger a year into the pandemic, bigger than they were prior to the pandemic states that allowed people to actually engage in freedom. Places like Utah, they actually had more people employed by about last summer than they did prior to the pandemic. And Florida was rapidly catching up and you had a number of other states that also saw more people employed in the middle of the pandemic than before, economies that were bigger than before, and families overall that were healthier, uh, both, both financially and also actually physically. Um, so there's a, a big difference um, state to state. I think a lot of companies um, that have weathered the storm in places like Maryland and even more so in places like New York and New Jersey, where things still aren't fully back to normal, they're going to have to think twice 
going forward about whether they want to make further capital investments and run the risk of ultimate bankruptcy. Because these state governments have shown not only that they will act rashly in the face of a perceived health threat, but even after the danger has diminished, even after we have seen the facts and been able to look at states that remained open and free and see that they're actually not suffering adversely because of it, we saw those politicians refuse to admit their mistakes and to keep the pressure on those small businesses and to do so in a way that was woefully unpredictable. And I spent a lot of time, well, a lot of the last 10 years living in D.C. and seeing how that city went through this virus with the alternating measures with really no science behind it. Well, companies now have to wonder, is this going to be a risk going forward? Because it turns out that a lot of mayors, a lot of county commissioners, a lot of health commissioners, a lot of governors, they seem to have relished in holding this type of power to control the masses of people. It's not about the money so much for those politicians. I truly believe it's about the power. And that's why we saw such a difference in how state governments handled this crisis. And if I were a business owner, a gym owner, a restaurant owner, really do have to think twice going forward because this isn't the first pandemic. It's not going to be the last pandemic. It certainly wasn't the most deadly uh, pandemic. But if you look at how our governments acted, never before in our nation's history have governments imposed such widespread restrictions on fundamental human rights and basic economic rights for so long of a period of time. It was a gross abuse of power. And sadly, in a lot of these states, little has been done to ensure that governors and mayors won't be able to act this way in the future. Well said. I couldn't have said it better. And we have been woefully abused here around the push of power by politicians. And it is so unacceptable. And I've come out against the governor and I just had to do it because I couldn't stand it anymore. It just was outrageous. And what they did was they pushed that power down to the politicians in local jurisdictions. And by doing that, and I'll speak about Maryland, these these county executives had way more power than they had earned or deserved. So it put us in an uncompromising position in certain jurisdictions and the and the governor needed to take leadership and really take control of this rather than push it off to somebody else because that's not leadership. You're listening to Success Happens. We're going to take a quick break. I'd like to thank our sponsors, Sweeties on the Creek. We're scooping now and also pouring some wonderful hot cocoa on these cold winter days. And also I'd like to thank Flamingo Pool Supply and KW Photography and Design. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Success Happens. I have with me today Joel Griffith from the Heritage Foundation, who is an economist steeped in the policy of all things money. This is about blending business and politics on Success Happens. And there is an intersection, a convergence where what happens in the economy and commerce and our families, our businesses and our local societies is affected by the policies made by leadership in the local municipalities, the state and national. And we're seeing that played out right now. We talk about hyperinflation, perhaps you could explain that a little bit. And is that indeed something we're gonna be facing? First off, it's not in our imagination. We know by going to the store, by filling up our cars, by renewing our rents, by getting a new mortgage, we know prices are going up and the data are confirming this. The Bureau of Labor Statistics tracks this, they do a very good job and we now know that inflation is rising at the fastest clip in about 30 years. And it is very 
painful. The fact is uh, now that we see prices rising at a clip greater than what the typical income is rising. And when you have prices rising, say by six or 7% in a year and wages rising by just 3%, well, that means that your quality of life has actually diminished by several percentage points. And you might be able to deal with that for a one-year period, but if your wages never catch up, even if the inflation rate comes back down, if your wages never close that gap from that year in which prices rose faster than your salary, well, that means that you end up taking a permanent hit to your quality of life. And that's a very real concern. When we talk about hyperinflation versus higher inflation, uh, well, we have to realize that there's a lot of factors that go into these rising prices. Typically, an overall increase in the price level for goods and services, usually that is uh, mostly related to monetary policy with how much additional currency money is flowing through the economy. But right now, we have a, a very unusual situation uh, because a lot of um, the factors leading to this rise in prices are due to supply being diminished. Uh, if you think about you know, factories in general, everything that goes into to getting your new piece of furniture, your new big screen, or even you know, the turkey for Thanksgiving just a few weeks ago, that requires manufacturing facilities. It, it requires people to actually be on the floor. It requires people actually showing up to work. And over this last year, we have had a lot of edicts that were really repressing the ability of businesses to produce and that were really artificially suppressing uh, the labor supply. Think about school shutting down. Parents weren't able to know what their schedules are going to be. They couldn't get child care. Um, these were big problems. Then you compound that with all these government benefits, not just the unemployment benefits, but all the stimulus checks that acted as a disincentive to people going to work. That is a recipe to actually suppress supply. And this is something we have never dealt with before as, as a country. Um, I know that people like to say this was done in order to combat COVID. Whether or not those um, requirements were prudent, and I happen to believe they were very imprudent and unlawful, but regardless of whether they are prudent or not, the bottom line is we actually did suppress supply. And that's a big part of the reason why we've seen these prices increase. But there is a monetary component to that. And if you look at what's happened over the past year with the government spending trillions of dollars that they don't have, well, where did that money come from? It wasn't just borrowed. It certainly wasn't just taxed. A lot of that money was actually courtesy of our central bank printing trillions of dollars, taking those dollars, buying government bonds. So now the government has that cash in hand. The government then spent it. The analogy would be dropping it by helicopter, just flooding checking accounts, flooding businesses with money at a time we weren't producing. And that has contributed to the rise in prices because we have artificially stimulated demand at a time that we were actually producing less. When I go to the grocery store and I look at the price of milk or the price of eggs, okay, it's gone up at least 30%. That's what I'm saying. And then I heard that they have been destroying food supply. So back to this supply and demand notion, you have people who are struggling to put gas in their car at these prices, struggling to put food on their table, and struggling to meet the high cost of housing, then in the middle of it, they're destroying the crops or destroying the food supply. I mean, why would they do such a thing when people are struggling to eat? That makes no sense to me. 
Well, you raise a very good point there. And it's a good question to ask. Well, why is it that we have these policies in place that actually, as you said, sometimes result in food being destroyed? Or think about our um, one of the reasons why corn prices have been elevated. Well, we are paying farmers to grow copious amounts of corn through these ethanol subsidies so that we can then go ahead and burn the ethanol as fuel when we have a much cheaper, more abundant fuel source that's there in the ground ready to be tapped. Well, there's a lot of money to be made for these special interest groups that lobby Congress, and they get a lot of support from those entities. And a lot of those entities are very, very outspoken. Um, and you see this in almost pretty much in every sector where every sector wants their carve out, wants their giveaway, wants their tariff placed on their um, competitors from overseas. And they usually get away with that lobbying. And all of us as consumers pay for it. And I think we're starting to take note of it because prices have risen so much so quickly. I think it's great that people are starting to ask the question why, because this has been going on a very long time. It's just that politicians have gotten away from it because our private sector is so productive and we do have a relatively free system that that increase in productivity that we see every year masks a lot of this unethical behavior that occurs in Washington, D.C., and they get away with it. Wow. That's shocking. Go back and listen to last week's show with Joe Von Pulitzer about election integrity. And here's why they converge. Those leaders, if you actually believe that the election was rigged, then you know then that the leadership that's in place right now making the decisions that Joel is referring to in terms of current policy are impacting our economy our livelihoods, our jobs, our businesses, our employees, their families, their children. It's a massive impact on our society. So we got to get it right in our leadership because these people are power hungry and they're being abusive of that power and the, the ramifications are very serious. We know when you look at the economy and what we're going through right now, Joel, and again, human services lens, Huge increases in drug overdoses, alcoholism, depression, and suicide. This is the consequence of the people's decisions that are impacting you and me. We're going to take a quick break for news and weather. You're listening to Success Happens on Free Talk 930 WFMD. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Success Happens. This is Jen, and I have with me today Joel Griffith, who is a research fellow with the Heritage Foundation, and we are delighted to have him with us, uh, educating us on the impact of what's been going on for the past year and a half. Joel, I'd like to switch to something that affects all of us, and when you talk about food supply, it's built in there, the gas prices. When the gas prices go up, your food supply costs are going to go up because you got to transport it. So it's a built-in cost, not to mention the cost of all of us as consumers, as moms, as dads, schlepping our kids, going to work, our employees, their costs. Now they need to make more money so they can pay their rent. It has a rolling downhill effect. What the heck is going on with our energy prices? We had it so well during Trump. I mean, he had really figured it out. Yeah, well, on, on energy, um, if you go back the last 10 to 15 years here in this country, we were able to achieve energy independence for the first time in many decades. And that was because we embarked on a mission to allow our private sector to actually pursue the, uh, the abundant 
natural resources that we have in this country. We have hundreds of years worth of natural gas supplies, of oil supplies here in this country. And we were able to last tap into that. And uh, the, the new technology, the fracking technology, um, being able to transport this efficiently through uh, expanding our pipeline system, those developments were in high speed. And we were really starting to realize the benefits of that, not just in terms of the, the national security implications and no longer having to rely on some countries that are actually hostile to us, such as Venezuela, and not just the fact that we were able to cool our homes and power our vehicles more affordably. For those that are concerned about having quality manufacturing jobs here, that's very important as well because energy is one of the most important factors to whether or not a factory can actually locate here. If you're running a small factory, the differential even between a place like Michigan, which is high cost, and Texas can be a half million dollars a year in energy costs just for a small factory. So this was very important, unleashing that energy potential. And if you look at what happened with day one with President Biden on day one. Yeah, that was shocking. Stone XL pipeline. Right. And, and that would have given us decades worth of reliable um, energy coming in from Canada through the United States. Of course, Canada is one of our most loyal long-term allies. But then even beyond that, you see the administration catering to far left radical environmental groups trying to ban energy development on federal lands and promising European and a lot of socialist counterparts across the ocean that we're going to go ahead and clamp down on our fossil industry going forward in the next few decades. What you're pointing to, Joel, is so important to point out here because it's not America first. That is not an America first policy. It's everybody else first and America last. I mean, if we're mucking with the markets so that they are prosperous, then we're putting ourselves last. And this was the whole point of Make America Great movement. And by the way, it's still alive and well to put America first. Uh, well, when it comes to energy development, it's, you know, this is just about unleashing the private sector and allowing businesses to invest and incentivizing that. Think about pipelines, refineries. These cost billions of dollars to construct and they should last for decades. And now you have businesses that have to think, wow, if we invest this billion dollars in a new refinery or a new pipeline or these new explorations out west in land that has not been proven yet to actually have oil, they have to wonder, wow, if this is successful, is a future administration or is the current administration going to shut this down? It deters investment. Yeah, I think that does uh, conflict with this idea of America first. Really what that, that should mean is that individuals and businesses are able to invest and pursue opportunities, whether it's a company, whether it's individual. And what you have right now with this administration is ensuring that we're going to see businesses risk less going forward. And this is about accumulating power in the hands of Washington, D.C. Energy is such an important aspect of our economy. And it's also about redistributing wealth, not within our own country, really, but redistributing wealth from wealthy countries to those that have not yet been able to produce wealth on their own. And really, this hurts not just us, it actually hurts those countries as well, as well, because we should be encouraging those countries to replicate what made us great. It's not just because we're America. What makes us great is our values and our economic system, respect for private property and free enterprise and individual rights. That's how we became so wealthy. And that's how small countries that are landlocked, like think about Hong Kong 
right? Or, or Taiwan. These are not countries that span a continent. These are small countries, but because they, for a long time, had freedom, they were able to become wealthy. And that should be our hope for other countries across the world. They're not going to get wealthy by robbing other nations. They're going to get wealthy by actually implementing those values that made our country and made our allies great. Beautifully said. That's awesome. Yes, we have a responsibility to our fellow man. But what has happened starting January 20th, to your point, you know, with the pipeline, that we've just been in a in a constant degradation of our society single-handedly, if indeed that's what's going on. It might be a committee. We think it's a committee. Let's take a quick break. And then when we come back, let's talk about something hopeful. You know, where can we maybe make a difference to give people some sense of hope? And one thing I I want people to think about is we do need manufacturing here. We need to bring our supply chains home and get off this dependence on China. But, you know, we do have partners on this side of the hemisphere. And Peter Husey had mentioned that, that, you know, can we bring some of these supply chains closer? You're listening to Success Happens. I have with me today Joel Griffith from the Heritage Foundation. I want to just mention, if you have a few extra nickels, dollars or dimes that you want to share, a great place to invest that money is with the Heritage Foundation. They do a phenomenal job providing us with information, resources, fighting the good fight for conservative values and information that educates all of us to make our country better. So I love the organization. You can find information at theheritagefoundation.org. And we'll be right back. Welcome back to Success Happens. I have with me today Joel Griffith, from the Heritage Foundation, who is an economist. So we're taking a look at the financial aspects of where we are. Um, Joel, we've kind of talked about some stuff that's frustrating. We know where we're what we've been through. Where do you suggest people look to pull ourselves out of this uh, nosedive that we've been in as an economy? If you look over the past year and a half and the economic performance uh, state by state in terms of gross domestic output and in terms of employment. I remain very hopeful for this country because individual states still have a lot of power over their own destiny. And think about the very time that New York City was shuttered. And I spent some time in New York during the shutdowns and you saw the the storefronts that were abandoned, not just because of the riots, but because the businesses just went belly up. And you see all the despair in places like Chicago and even Los Angeles with a skid row now that is 50 city blocks. But you contrast that with places like Miami, Florida, where I've spent the better part of a year actually during during COVID, and you see businesses booming, you see people happy, you don't see riots in the street, uh, you see businesses growing, and people enjoying life, and people working in places like Fort Lauderdale and Atlanta, Georgia, and Charleston, South Carolina, and uh, and I got to mention too, I was out in Utah in uh, in uh, St. George just a few weeks ago at a, a chamber of commerce there, and I spent a few days in that city where people seem happy and it seems healthy, and the businesses are open and growing. There's a big difference. Governance makes a big difference, and it turns out if you allow people to go about their lives, even during a pandemic, it turns out people want to go about their lives. They want to run their businesses. They want to be around other people. They want to be mentally and spiritually healthy. And uh, thanks to our federalist system, where the federal government has a limited amount of control, 
over what they can mandate a local government do. Because of that, I am hopeful. And it sure, that might mean places like Illinois and California continue to slide down into economic despair. But guess what? In our country, we can choose tomorrow. It might be difficult to leave our families and leave our friends and leave our businesses, but we have the right to pack up and leave. And we see thousands of people doing that each and every day, not just during COVID. But if you look at Census Bureau data, this has been happening now for decades. People leaving high tax, poorly run areas like New York and San Francisco, and they're going to places where they can have economic freedom. Um, so I am hopeful for the country because of that. And on a national level, I remain hopeful because we do have a court system that can't be swayed by any one election. It takes a lot of time for courts to be remade in a radical way. And right now I have been pleased that a number of state Supreme Courts have actually um, ruled to rein in some of the most draconian edicts that governors have put in place during the age of COVID. So I have not lost all hope yet for the United States. When you look at the new variant that they're now announcing is coming at us, someday. And, you know, they're trying to drive fear again. What do you say about that? How do we counter that? Um, I I think uh, we really should follow the lead of Texas and and Florida and a number of Western states that they realize the role of the government. Um, It's it's to make sure that, that people are getting good information. Uh, make sure that our that uh, the health system is run is running properly, but not to restrict people's lives. Let individuals decide what precautions they will take. Some people might choose sure. Maybe some people might choose to stay home. Some people might choose to uh, to many to become to become vaccinated. But these are individual health decisions. These are individual social decisions. And um, I think as you referenced um, uh, a little while back, um, there are a lot of side effects of engaging in broad shutdowns and forcing people to remain isolated from each other. If you look at the substance abuse that has happened over this past year, you have opioid um, abuse in some areas. That's actually the leading cause of death for younger males. And having this isolation exacerbated this, we saw suicides rise. You see the governor of New York now saying out of out of precaution, they're no longer going to allow elective surgeries, at least for the time being. That has real consequences too in terms of quality of life and also in terms of diagnoses that are not made. Um, So governors have a lot of um, power to really um, inflict a lot of harm beyond that which the pandemic would do. I think it's very important to allow people, individuals, um, religious institutions to make those decisions for themselves. And if you look at what happened over this past year, it turns out that the vast, vast majority of people said this is a risk that we are going to live with. We are not going to allow this to be isolated from our friends, from our families, from our are um, from our communities in general, it's not worth it. There's a risk with everything in life. But if you go through life, many people decided it's not worth it to shelter at home and to not see our siblings, our parents, our children, our grandchildren. It's not it's not worth it. And um, for them, I think that was for many people, that was the right decision. And I will say I don't believe that governors or mayors have the right to make that decision for us. It's immoral. Absolutely. A couple things that come to mind as as you were speaking. One is, you know, people are walking out. Nurses, doctors, manufacturing employees, they're walking out of the job. They're saying, I'm not taking this nonsense anymore. 
I don't need this job as much as you need me and I'm out of here. And there's been walkouts that have been scheduled, planned and done. And there's a real consequence back to the impact on the economy. You take that money out of the workplace, but you also take that money out of the commerce. And uh, so, you know, people are standing up and I'm really proud of uh, Americans who are are finding their backbone and finding their voice. And I, I often say now, I was never an activist, but I've become one. When you look at the pharmaceutical, and I think we could do a whole show, Joel, just on the cost and the um, financial opportunities that pharmaceutical companies have created for themselves out of this. When you're looking at the billions and billions of dollars that have been made by pharmaceutical companies, it it calls into question their motives. It really does. And when you look at what you mentioned, unethical, there is an ethics matter here. There is an economic driver for pharmaceutical companies at the cost of those of us who are trying to live our lives peacefully and free. And uh, Americans are done with it. They're really done with it. We've said, now we've had enough. Now there's a a few people who will continue to go along to get along. But there is definitely a separation now that transcends party lines. One last question I have for you. Have you seen an economic impact on specific populations more than others? Uh, That's a really interesting question. Oddly enough, (laughs) the turmoil uh, of this past year, it has not affected all income classes the same. If you look at people at the very bottom, um, those that became unemployed or that were unemployed or that were in the lower income thresholds, because of all of the government stimulus spending and unemployment benefits and the eviction moratorium, um, and even with um, those of us um, that still have student uh, loans, the um, the freeze on student loan payments, a lot of people in those in those categories found out that for at least this past year, they came out financially uh, ahead, some, sometimes significantly ahead. If you look at the, the, um, the, the savings rates and disposable income for families during part of that, uh, the, the shutdowns, those are actually at all-time highs. We had savings rates that surged. Biden said, he said, now they, you know, people did so well with their savings so they can absorb <laughs> the cost of higher gas prices. That was just shocking. Oh, well, it, it is um, in a way amusing. Uh, yeah, when you look at the stimulus checks that were distributed, let's say you had $2,500 in checks for your kids and for yourself. Everybody loved that. Uh, but then you people really very quickly realized that, wow, it's not not worth it. If you're making 60000 a year and you're spending sixty, and your cost of living just went up by 10%, that dwarfs those stimulus checks. But there's that lag time. Politicians got all the benefit from sending out all these checks. And this wasn't, of course, just Democrats supported that. Republicans did as well. President Trump was president during um, the stimulus uh, checks um, being dispersed. People are connecting the dots now. Longer term, I think we're going to find a lot of those families are going to be hurt because economic opportunities are going to be diminished because we've twisted um, the supply uh, side by so much with all the restrictions and now with the overgovernment spending. Longer term, I think they're going to suffer. But if you look at those at the very top, investments um, in real estate, 
and in uh, corporate bonds and in, in equities. Wow, they did fabulously well. As, um, fabulously well. Um, the the market cap right now, even with the mini correction that we've seen the last week or so, the market cap of all U.S. companies is about thirty percent higher than it was prior to the pandemic. I mean, think about that. If you're invested in the market. You did very well over this past year and a half. And we have to ask ourselves, well, how did that happen? Why is the market cap 30% greater now than it was prior to the pre prior to the pandemic? Our economy isn't 30% bigger. Our economy is not healthier. Well, in large part, that's because you had our central bank buying up certain types of assets and then that diverted the money elsewhere, mainly into the stock market or a lot of it in the stock market. And so those at the very, very top did very, very well. I think a lot of the people that were most squeezed were actually the middle class and upper middle class, a lot of business owners, such as yourself, people that had owned the smaller restaurants and owned the entertainment venues um, that relied on people being able to travel. Those individuals, smaller retailers, think about the smaller retailers that were shut while the big guys and Target and Walmart remained open and saw record profits. It's those people, those smaller business owners and um, some of those, a lot of those middle class business owners that were really devastated um, by this, people in the middle. Yeah, mainstream America got crushed. Exactly. Joel, it has been awesome to work with you today. I thank you so much for bringing your knowledge and expertise to our listeners. And thank you. We'll have you back. And I may tap your shoulder sometime when something's going on and say, what are your thoughts on this? And again, everyone, if you would like to support the Heritage Foundation, go to heritagefoundation.org. They will look forward to your support. You're listening to Success Happens. It's been great to have you with us. Also, don't forget to download our WFMD app and share this podcast out to people who are looking for this information. We'll look forward to having you next Saturday morning at 9 a.m. right here on WFMD.